So we're looking at how God builds. Our God is a master builder. When Jesus came to earth, it was as the son of a carpenter, a builder. God builds lives. He builds families. When the Bible talks about the house of David or the house of Saul, it's not his residence, it's his family. It's his legacy, it's his generation. It refers always to a family, a household, a people that God's putting together. And if God builds that family, if God builds that house, and you do it the way he said, he guards it. I I don't know about you, but I want God to build something out of my life. I don't want to live for nothing. Well, here are three ways God does it, and we talked about them. He does it revelationally, he does it relationally, putting people together, and he does it generationally. He's always thinking long-term. The average Christian doesn't think past lunch. I'm serious. They always want to fly away instead of build something. What God builds into your life or mine out of your life, He does first with the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Peter said, you're Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. Then Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock... I will build my church. He's not talking about Peter. He's talking about the rock of the revelation of who Jesus is, our cornerstone. He is the the rock that the builders rejected. He is not talking about Peter. That gets messed up in some religious circles. You, You know, Peter is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Well, we're not talking about Peter, so it doesn't matter. I'm just saying how somebody could put him on your dashboard is beyond me. I'd rather have my mother-in-law up there than Peter. You'd get a better shot. Peter is, he encourages me as a Christian. I thought if Peter can go to heaven, I got it made, you know. Okay, that's beside the point. So let me say that if you don't have that saving revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and your only hope of salvation, your life will not stand in the day of judgment. Now, everybody believes historically in Jesus. That doesn't save you. It is knowing that I'm receiving Him as the Son of God, my Savior who died to pay for my sins and give me a gift called eternal life. That's the key. That's the rock that God builds everything in your life on. And until you have that revelation, there is no hope. And then He builds, secondly, revelationally. The body, Ephesians 4 says, builds itself up in love as every joint supplies. Let me pause there. The the growth potential of the human body is in the joints. Bring it over into the spiritual. The growth potential of the spiritual family is in the joinings, putting people together. You know, who you hang with will determine how far you go, how fast you run, what direction you run. If you're hanging out with somebody that's taking you the opposite direction, you're not going to have much built in your life. You need a, you know, you, you need a, a bigger aquarium to swim in. Be picky about the people that you hang out with. Be, how do they think? What's their dream? What's their vision? If God puts people together, it's for our benefit so we grow, and every joint is supposed to be supplying. Are you supplying anything? Half the church only comes twice a year, Christmas and Easter, and they don't serve, they don't give, they don't pray, they just sit. They, don't, they just take, but they never supply. So the, 
If half my body shut down, I would be stunted in my growth. Yeah. Well, I, you, that that's, happens in a lot of churches where we're stunted and we're not as mature and big and influential and impactful as we could be because everybody's not supplying anything. So, you got here relationally. The stork didn't bring you. That may be a real eye-wakener there for some people, but no, the stork didn't do it. There was a relationship that puts you here on earth. So, God starts off showing us who He is, the Son of God, Savior of the world. Then He builds, that's the foundation, then He starts building on the foundation by putting us with people that He has joined us to. God doesn't leave us alone. Now, I know it's Texas, the Lone Star State, the Lone Ranger. If you start reading about what happens to people alone, it's really bad. The Bible says, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wisdom and wise judgment. That's why people that lock themselves in a room, the kids that don't come out, walk into schools and kill people. Or Ted Kaczynski living in a 12 by 12 cabin in Washington State in the woods with no electricity and no friendships is killing people with mail bombs. See, it's not healthy. It's not biblical. God puts the solitary in families. Psalm 68, 1. He places every member in a body as it pleased him, Scripture says. It's not the church of my choice. It's the church of his choice. He's the one who joins us. And so God has a plan for you. In America, we've got a large number of people born again. They've got the rock of the revelation of who Jesus is, but they still don't know where they're joined. They don't have a revelation of where God has set them. And if you're not where God has set you, here's what I'll guarantee you. You won't grow. There are some of us that have been here for 20 and 30 years when we started this church can name family after family that isolated itself and they've joined like six different churches and they're tumbleweeds and they've built nothing but their life. You know, there are no perfect churches because there are no perfect people. Yeah. Well, I'm going to marry somebody. Well, good. You're just going to get another sin or two. It won't take long. It won't, does it? I mean, if grabbing different mates would make us all happy, Hollywood would be the most joyful place in the world. Come on, you know I'm telling you the truth. Somebody needs to wake up in church and think, right? So because you can't grow by yourself, God puts you together with people. Iron sharpens iron. Deep calls to deep. He that walks with wise men shall be wise. But if you hang out with stupid people, you're just going to get dumb. Pick your friends carefully. Then God builds generationally. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's thinking long-term generationally. And I want to expand on that thought of generational building. I was always unclear why God got confused in Psalms 127. He starts about talking about a house, then a city. Then he starts talking about children. Verse 3 and 4, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is God's reward. Like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, so are the children of one's youth. So how does God build the house? He builds it with children of the house. The fruit of the womb is His reward. Now carry that over into the spiritual. He builds the spiritual house, family, by adding to the family. Now the Hebrew model of maturity was not knowledge like the Greeks. It was relationships. In the Hebrew model, you grow and mature as you learn to relate to God and relate to others. 
By the way, people who can't relate to others don't do well in business either. You won't get promoted. You can't get along with people. You're just toxic. You've got to be able to get along with people who are different, people you might disagree with. But would you agree that in our country at the moment, that isn't happening? No. I mean, if you're going to stay married, you won't agree on everything. Yeah, be real quiet. Look forward. (laughs) You're not going to agree on everything, but you can love each other and uh, honor each other and just disagree. That's okay. So Psalms 127 is revealing that what God builds, He builds to last generationally. What we build in America doesn't last one generation. Churches are lucky to last 15 years because they don't build right. Ministries that were on front page of Christian magazines, gone. The people that were there, gone. I traveled the world. I've had over 10 million miles. Australia, South Africa, uh, Europe, the UK, Bulgaria, you name it, Hong Kong, Singapore. I, and I, there are people that were pretty well-to-do and pretty influential back then in Christianity and as speakers and in church leaders. And now when I travel the world, they're all gone. They're not even there anymore. They didn't last one generation. I'd like to build something that lasts multi-generations. You pass the baton, you build it right, it lives on after you, it maintains value, and that sucker just keeps growing. But to do that, you got to build it like God said, see? So God builds generationally. He builds families. He's building spiritual homes. And out of the spiritual loins of a house, He builds more children. That means in our crazy world, getting crazier by the minute, we can't assume what we did 25 years ago. The things we assumed that people knew 25 years ago is not true today. People used to inherit basic core values about life, about what was important. Today, it's not true. So we can't assume people understand foundation values that God says are important. So if we get this, God can build something into my life and your life. And when the storms come, we'll talk about storms and why they come next week you'll stand. And when trials come, you won't fall. You won't be offended. You won't run away. You know, if you run away every time there's a storm, you ain't staying married three weeks. If if you're offended easily, you won't stay in a church. You won't stay on a team. You won't stay in a job. That's not even possible. That's why God wants to grow you through people. And there's friction in that. And God wants to scrape junk off of you and mold you into good character. But he can't do that just sitting on a comfortable pew or a chair somebody else paid for. Just thought I'd throw that in. (laughs) See, what we model today in American culture are disposable relationships. The very thing God holds high in value, we undervalue. We think they're disposable relationships. And God says, no, they're indisposable. If he's going to build it, marriage relationships today have what, a lifespan of three and a half years? If you don't please me, I'm out of here. If children don't like parental authority over them or the values mom and dad hold precious, kids say, I'm out of here. Now, you bring that attitude over into the spiritual family, the church, and the moment you don't like something, your attitude is, well, it's a disposable relationship. It doesn't matter. I'll just move on down the street. As long as the church, the music, the preaching, and staff please me, I'm fine. But the moment it doesn't, I'm out. I don't know anybody been married a long time, always gets pleased. The Beatles had a song, Please Please Me. 
That, that doesn't work in my family. I don't, I don't know. How are you doing? I don't always get what I want. I don't have a Burger King marriage, you know, get it my way. It doesn't happen. There's sacrifice. There's some pain. There's some endurance. You don't like everything. Welcome to the earth. Only in heaven there's no problem, see? But you're living on this nasty earth, and there are problems, and you have to learn to navigate it, and it's supposed to build some character in you and some staying power. you you got to you know, only you watch the sports and these guys play hurt with needles and pins stuck in them, but they're playing for something big in a championship. Christians won't turn out if it gets below 32 degrees or if it rains. How you build anything like that? Well, there's road construction on Marshall. Well, heck, there's road construction in this whole city, but you make it to work. Why can't you make it to church? See, which is more valuable? Come on, somebody. So how can you build anything with a value mentality like that? You can't. You're living in a trailer, not a brick home. And that's the way folks treat life today. Life on wheels. But God's house isn't on wheels. It's got foundations. It's permanent. It's stable. So I'm going to look at about five ways God builds with children. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, think about, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, the writer is comparing the New Testament with the Old Testament, and he's showing the superiority of the new covenant, which is a better covenant. So Jesus is the apostle of God, sent from God to us to represent God to us, and he's our high priest who represents us to God. He's our mediator, not Mary, not Peter, not the old saints, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I just quoted you Paul's letter to Timothy. One mediator. You can pray to Mary all day, and she's a godly, wonderful, virtuous woman. She ain't going to help you. She is not the mediator. Only Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. Okay, this is, you know, even I as a pagan university student didn't have any problem figuring that's pretty clear. That was just pretty. Now, my only decision was, do I want to or do I not want to? It wasn't, was it true? I knew it was true. I just wrestled with the fact of giving my life to somebody. And that was a bit of the battle there. So the writer says, think about him, consider him. Well, in what way? Verse 2, because he was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in his house or family, Israel. So Moses was faithful in his house, and Christ was faithful in his house. Verse 3, for this man was counted worthy, this is Jesus, worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who builds the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant. Christ was faithful as a son, whose house we are. So can you see he's comparing the difference between a servant and his thinking and a son and his thinking. So Moses is not bad or anything wrong with him. It just means in the Old Testament, Moses was faithful to God in the house God gave him, the spiritual family of Israel, as a servant. But Christ was faithful in his house, the church, as a son. And the ministry that comes out of a New Testament sonship mentality is superior to the ministry that comes out of a servant mentality. In the Old Testament, God had to tell every prophet what to do, what to say, where to go. That's what you do with a servant, not a son. Sons can initiate. 
Sons can look out and say, look like the grass has covered the car. Maybe I ought to cut the grass. You don't need daddy to get a tire tool to say, cut the grass, son, right? Or fix something or pick something up or, or do something. No, you expect them to initiate. They're part of the family. So which are you? Are you a servant or a son? I'll give you a pop quiz and you can decide. So remember, servanthood is one of the keys of the kingdom. Jesus said, if you want to be great, be a servant to all. The way up in my kingdom is down. I came not to be ministered to, but to serve and to give my life a ransom. If you don't like serving and you don't like giving, forget being a Christian. Go worship a tree. Because the DNA of Christianity is serving and giving the whole life. That's our Savior. That's what he said. Well, so watch. The son serves, but he serves from a son mentality. The servant serves out of a slave mentality. So the New Testament is replacing the servant idea with sonship serving. So the writer says, consider Jesus the son, because that pattern is the one we want to copy, the one we want to replicate, and it's superior. As great as Moses was, he didn't serve as a son. He served as a servant. All Old Testament prophets served as servants, but God can't build his family on a servant. He builds on the concept of family. You are his child. See, God is taking away that Old Testament slave mentality and replacing it with the superior mentality of a son. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem all of us who were under that law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We're family. God's answer to the human predicament of sin and death and divorce and murder and war and prejudice and racism and bigotry was a son. And every answer God has for this world is any son. Salvation, restoration, healing, forgiveness, mercy, grace, deliverance, it's all in the son. And the father sent this son so we could receive the adoptions of sons, not slaves. God wants a family, not a bunch of housemaids. He wants a family. But they are family or sons who serve. You know, we've got, we raised our girls, and let me tell you something, unless they were waddling in the, in the little nursery when they were first born, those little critters were made to serve. Yeah, you live in a privileged household, you've got benefits coming to you, you didn't earn, you didn't deserve, but we expect you as you grow and mature, you serve in this house. Clean your room, brush your teeth, wash your hands, pick that up. If you made that dirty, you clean that up right? Now, that's the, way, that's the way you raise a son or a daughter. When it says sons, it includes the female as well. So, the writer of Hebrews says, consider him. Think like Jesus. Act like him. Walk like him out of a sonship mentality. Now, Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his Holy Spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Daddy, Daddy, or Abba, Father. Now, you know, when my kids were little, if they came to the office, they didn't get an appointment. They didn't ask Judy, my PA, is it possible that we might have an appointment with thou, O great one, who parteth his hair on the left side, <laughs> that we might just have time that he might receive us? <laughs> no, those little rascals, they'd just run in. It didn't matter what was going on. and want to borrow, not borrow, want to take $20, you know. They thought and still do. I'm an ATM machine. Because how can they do that? Relationship. 
Daddy. See, we've got this idea. God's up there with a clipboard grading everything I do. Mm, well, that was a pretty good one. Okay. Oh, that's terrible. You're out. And it's like, we've got this work for me attitude with God instead of this loving father. You know, my kids have disappointed me when, as they grew up at times with choices they made, but it didn't hinder my love for them one ounce, not one. And it hasn't hindered God from loving you one moment. See, it's family. It's not work for me, family, family. It's family that works, but it's not a work for me mentality. So he sends his spirit into your heart saying, Daddy, Daddy, Abba, Father. So you're no more a servant, but you're a son. And if a son, you're an heir of God through Christ. Saying, you see, you're not a slave working in the house for wages. You're not a worker, an employee, or a slave. You're a son who does work and serve, but you're destined to inherit everything that Christ has paid for. And if you can think like that, it kind of changes your perspective and your life. If you don't think like a son, you're still in verse 1. Now I say that an heir, as long as he stays immature and ignorant, a child who hasn't learned how to think, doesn't differ from a slave at all, although he is destined to inherit everything. In other words, you've been saved 10 years and you're still wetting your diaper and you're still immature. You're not contributing to the family at all. See, everybody has to keep telling you what to do. Brush your deeds. You wash your hands out. Okay. I don't want to do that when my kids become teenagers. You want them to think for themselves. You're training them like a little servant when they're little, but you hope at some point they can do it on their own without being told, oh, I didn't drop that, but I'll pick it up. No, here's our head. It's not my job. I don't get paid to do that. Well, you're not a son. You're a slave. You're a servant. See, God builds on the revelation of a relationship with him that's generational. He wants this thing to go forward. And until I come into that, I'm thinking like a kid. We walk around like slaves. God wants us to start thinking and acting like sons. So here's your quiz. Am I thinking like a servant or a son? Let me hurry. Number one, sons build the house. Servants simply serve in the house. They just do what they're told. Moses was faithful as he served in the house as a servant. Christ was faithful as he built the house. If you become a builder of the house, it's superior to serving in the, in the house. Are you teaching a class as a job, just serving? Or are you building through that class? See, if God planted you in this house, it's our music ministry. It's our children's ministry. It's our house. Treat it like you're… There are things you let your kids do here you won't let them do at home. Shame on you. This is our spiritual house. There are things we wouldn't let our kids do at home, and you're not going to do it in our spiritual house or family. We don't behave like that. We don't talk like that. We don't act like that in this home. I can remember my mother saying that. What do you think this house is? A barn? Clean that up. We have to go out and clean up the parking lot because people throw dirty diapers in the bushes out there. Can you imagine? Somebody needs to jerk your 45-year-old britches down and give you a whipping. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to church. Um, well, it's family. It's family. See, I'm not up here just serving God. I'm trying to build something. Our children in nursery classes are sons and daughters of the house. So are you building the house or are you just helping out? Attitude, see? What comes out of you as a servant is not very powerful. But when you have a sonship mentality, it's awesome. You should be building into those children, building into adults, something that will bless the house from now forward generationally. 
So are you building in the house or just serving? Well, Rick, I'm just ushering. No, no, no. you got to see every person, every visitor coming in as a living stone Father wants to build the house with. If you're a son or a daughter of this house, you give a warm, good impression. You're helpful. You take initiative. Servants don't care. If it's not my job, I'm not doing it. If no one tells me to do it, although I see it needs to be done, I won't do it. Now, you think with me, how, what can you build with that attitude? Not much. A chicken coop. That's all. Number two, a servant sees himself as a worker in somebody else's house, but a son sees himself as an heir, and he has a sense of ownership. Now, down the street here on 281, which we all love to curse into the darkness of the night, we had a McDonald's. And there'll be a crew of about 10 people, somebody cooking, somebody cleaning tables, somebody else mopping the floor, somebody flipping hamburgers. Let's say one of those persons is the son or daughter of the owner of that McDonald's franchise. All of them are working, all of them are serving, all of them are busy, but one is not just doing the job for a paycheck, he's excellent and working because he's got a piece of that baby, hopefully in the future, in the next generation, as dad hands it off. He's laboring to make that thing he's part of look good, look better, up the sales. His motivation and mentality is different in what he does and how he does it. How do you know? Well, here's supposing the boss comes in and says, the owner, his dad, there's not going to be bonuses this year due to a slump in sales. Well, the reaction will be different. The servant's out of here. He wants to find some place else. The son, he's not worried. He's got a stake in this thing. So he says, Dad, how can we cut costs? How can we improve sales and service? Let's do this. Let's get this thing moving. Let's create. Totally different attitude. See, the son rides out the storm. The servant jumps ship. He's self-preserving, self-serving. If you're a son and you see trash or litter on our lot or whatever, stop and pick it up. Why? You've got a stake in the ownership of this place. The servant says, not my job. You know, Cindy and I, I I like to use sometimes servant son. I like to use owner renter. It communicates a lot more. Everybody in real estate knows that not always, but generally renters trash the house. They don't take care of it. Why? They don't own it. They got nothing in it. But if you move into a house to rent it, but you have an owner mentality, a son mentality, you'll treat it like you do own it. I'll paint where it needs paint. I'll get rid of the weed patch in the front yard. I'll increase the value of that home, not because of the owner, but because it represents who I am. I'm in that house, and I want that darn thing to look good. Cindy and I rented for 10 years before we built a home here, and in every case, we improved the value of that home. It didn't look run down like Samford and Sons yard, looked like a junkyard or something. We've got, a, we've got a neighbor that does, but, you know, I shouldn't say, I should not say anymore. And I'm thinking, you're a reproach to the neighborhood. How dare you? You run down the value of the neighborhood. Do you up the value when you walk into a building, an office, on a team, in a job, or do you lower the value? There are people, when they step up, they increase the value of something. So that's exactly our approach. Now, some of you are military. You're transferred. You can't help that. Or you're with a major corporation, and they transfer you to Minneapolis. God bless you. You can have the ice and snow on bad roads, but whatever. But you can't help that. But while you're here, you treat it, this is my home. My reputation's at stake. 
I want it to be clean, neat, excellent, people friendly. I want it to be inclusive, not exclusive. I want it to represent everybody from the highest level to the lowest level. Every group, every race, every nationality, every culture included in God's house. I want that as my house. And I'm going to put my money in it as long as God has me there. It's my house. I'm going to support what the house does, what the family does, which is what you would expect all your children to do. If we have guests coming to our home, then our kids in the natural would be up. They'd have their teeth brushed. They'd, be, they'd have their hair done. And they'd be giving a friendly greeting. May I get you this? May I take your coat? They would be serving. That's the attitude of somebody who's part of the family. You're a child of the family. Well, if you put, God puts you here in Summit, you're part of the family. You know, take somebody's coat. Ask somebody, can I get this for you? May I help you? Uh, God bless you. I don't know that I've ever met you, but my name is. Uh, have you been here long? Be friendly. Be approachable. Don't just run to the car lot to get first in line at Whataburger or wherever you're going to eat. <laughs> okay. Sons use words like we, us, our. See, inclusive, family. Servants use words like they, them. If a servant doesn't like a policy, they say they decided. See, they're not in it. They don't include themselves. But sons are partners. They have a sense of proprietorship. It's God and sons incorporated. So do you see yourself as an heir together with everybody else building something together that will go on and last after you leave? Leave it better than you found it. Number three, a servant sees the house detached from himself, just a temporary place of employment. A son sees the house as a family for which he has been set in as a member. And I believe one of the most harmful effects of our culture is discontinuity of family relationships, whether it be through divorce or geographical separation. Christians think pretty much like the culture. We say to our kids, pick a college, anyone you like, and we send them to the one farthest from home. So we send our kids away from us to be schooled in an occupation that will take them even further from us. And then when you look at the family, there's no continuity, placement, or assignment. It's just independent wills all over the place, everybody doing what pleases them. How many of you have seen Western movies and maybe you, you've seen uh, Smith's Drugs, Smith's Livery, liber, I'm thinking of a Western, Livery Stable, yeah, something close, all right. Uh, Smith's Bank, Smith's Drugs. What happened? The Smiths kept reproducing and taking over the place. And their kids took over and expanded it. That's the idea we ought to all think about. When the Jewish people uh, were ostracized in New York when they, when they uh, uh, immigrated there, they couldn't buy land. They were discriminated against. You know what they did? Over generations, they bought Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue. They just slowly began to buy the property and buy the buildings. And then, you know, if you're the owner, you make the rules. If you're renting, you're the tail, not the head. God wants you to own something. That's why he gave Israel land. Now, God wants you to own something. Now, you may have to start renting something, of course. But your ultimate goal ought to be taking over the land. Well, why don't we, if I'm a businessman and successful, I'm going to think we are needing a children's building. We've got the room for it. We've got approval for it, but we need to raise, you know, what, three and a half million dollars to build that building over here. So I'm thinking if I'm part of the family, what part can I contribute to make that happen? I'm family. I want my family to look good. I want people to go when they drive by Marshall, I go, wow, that's what I want. I don't care if they agree with us. Wow. 
It'll knock me out. You know, I don't want something from Walmart. I don't want us to be a blue light markdown special. I want us to be something, something really special. And people are the most important thing. And so to have influence and impact, you've got to get your family together and behave like a family where we're all pulling the same way so we leave it better than we found it and we, we empower it, whether it's our time, our talent, or our treasure. God gives some of you lots of money. Use that money for the kingdom. God gives you some great talent. Use some of that talent, not just to make money on your records or your, your fame or your stage president, but for the kingdom. Ultimately, it's all for the kingdom. But God lets me live off of it too, so that's a good thing. But it isn't all for me, right? Not all of it. All right. We don't even think about set, settling an area, building something that's generational. So God isn't building something on wheels. He's building something that's got foundations and it's permanent. Number four, just one more after this. Servants see the glory and honor of the house and its leadership as separate from their own. The son sees the honor and reputation of the house synonymous with their own. When you see your family being attacked, you ought to see you being attacked. Jesus ran off wicked men who were profaning his father's house. He could have said, not my job, not none of my business. He got a whip and drove them out, didn't he? Yeah. The zeal of my father's house has consumed me. Jesus was so wrapped up in the house and reputation of the house that he was born into, he drove those ch changers out. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just thinking, if you see people attack your brother or sister on social media, fight for them. You know, do you speak up for those that are not present? I've done that for this family. I've defended people that I heard make stupid statements about that I've known for 20 years, and I immediately went for the juggler. I jumped in and said, you cannot talk like that. That is absolutely false. This person is, is a sacrificial giving. This person has been serving here from the bottom up. How dare you make such a stupid statement because of your own insecurity, jealousy, envy, and pitiful life. Yeah, she left the church, but that's fine. She wasn't a son anyway, just a slave. But I'll bite you if you bite my friends. Now, we can bite each other privately. Say, hey, don't do that. But when people are attacking, I remember when I first came here and we moved into our other location, I defended Mr. Hagee who was getting attacked for something in the school that they had that was ridiculous, absolutely stupid, ridiculous. And to this day, if we have lunch or have something, he'll say to me, he thanks me that I was the only one that stood up and said something for, for him. I'm not going to let anybody bite on you, say something ugly about you. It's family. I don't know we think like that. Psalms 127, 4 and 5, as arrows in the hands of a mighty man, we are children, so are the children of our youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. Get, get this stop. Can I tell you? I was on an airplane with our kids when they were little, and we went to the back of the plane where there were some empty seats because you don't want a bunch of noisy kids around you. And they got their Cheerios and snack packs. It's a mess, you can imagine. It is, it's horrible. They're kicking the seats in there, and we're doing our best to maintain some order and peace. And the guy in front of us turns around and says, are those your kids? <laughs> well, I knew it was bad because the flight attendant said, would you like for your children to play outside? Uh, <laughs> I knew it was bad. He said, are those your kids? Yes. Yes. And I thought, oh, here it comes. He said, I'd give anything to have two children. 
And I says, you don't have any kids. He says, no, I got five, but I'd give anything to have two. <laughs> anyway, blessed is the man that has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. They shall speak with the enemies in the gate. What does that mean? They shall speak with the enemies in the gate. It means when the city or the family comes under attack, it's the children of the house, the sons, who defend the house. When the attack comes, servants are out of here. Can you prove that? Sure. John 10, verse 12. Jesus said the servant, the hireling, flees when the wolf comes. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. When, when the storm comes, that, that's when you find out whether you are a son or a servant. The hireling, he runs away. He's afraid. But sons are like arrows. They answer the enemy back and silence him. And by the way, you can have divided loyalties in a house. Noah was a man of faith. He built an ark for 120 years, right? He built an ark for 120 years. Think about it. People reacting, being negative to him. Let's keep going. He built an ark for 120 years, and he was preparing for a coming destructive flood. After the flood, Noah planted a vineyard, and he got drunk. He had three sons. One comes in, sees his father's naked. He sees the uncovering of the father, and he goes and tells everybody, puts it on his blog, Instagram, and social media. Facebook. But the other two sons are true sons of Noah's house. And when they found out father was naked, they put a garment on their backs. They backed into the tent and covered their father's nakedness. Why? Because they saw the glory of the father and the reputation of the father attached to their own. So the enemy can't attack a father without attacking the sons. He can't attack a church without attacking the leadership. He can't attack my wife without attacking me. We, we understand that. And there's a big difference in covering and covering up. Covering up means you want to keep it a secret, and it's never dealt with. That's not biblical. Covering means minimal people involved to deal with the transgression. But I don't want my family out publicly if, if somebody is misbehaving. We want to deal with it. But I, don't, I see my reputation in this house with yours. So if somebody... If somebody is doing something wrong, we go to them privately. We will take the appropriate action, even if it's legal. We'll do it as minimally as I can. Now, why does God say, if you've got, if you, if you, if you got a problem with a brother, go to a brother by yourself. And then, number two, if they won't hear you, take one or two other people. God wants you to be able to repent, deal with, deal with the transgression appropriately, and then be able to reintegrate into the family. He doesn't want you to be shamed to the whole family. Then you can't be reintegrated back into the family. So God says, keep it down to a minimum. Don't put it all over everywhere. So in the hour of attack, if the sons of the house don't rise up to defend the house, the house has no defense. It isn't the father that defends the honor. It's those in submission to the father. If the sons don't stand in the gates, the city will fall. And it's the hour of testing, as you'll learn next week, that reveals whether you have a sonship reputation or servant. Let me give you one more real quick. Servants are issue-oriented. Sons are family-oriented. Issues divide people. Purpose unites people. People will ask, well, what's your view on Christmas trees? Issue. I don't know. I think they're pretty. I like them. I just think it's pagan. Well, then don't have one. Shut up. <laughs> I don't care. But their issue, their whole life, one lady met me and, uh, and she says, well, now why don't we have communion today? And I says, well, ma'am, you can have communion with your husband. You can have it at home. You can have it in a small group. 
In fact, there's only one scripture in Corinthians that says as often as you do it, leaving the option up to you. Once a day, once a quarter, once a year, it's, it's up to you. You can have it in small groups. You don't have to wait and have it in church. Communion. So it's an optional thing. And we encourage people to do that. But I, the bigger the church gets, the harder it is to do. When they did the communion in the New Testament, they just had a little family. And if we did it right, we'd pass wine around. And if we did it right, you'd have one cup. And if it started over here with Philip and it finally got over here, you'd have so much backwash in that cup, I don't know you want to drink it. That's why we don't do this. It's practical. God gave you a brain to think. Some of you didn't even know that, did you? Yeah. And we got these little cute packages and everything. I can't even get them open, hardly, you, you know. But you can take a biscuit or something, a piece of bread, some grape juice, a wine, a Coke, water, whatever. It's the symbol of what the Holy Spirit wants to do and apply to us when we take it. It's not the actual substance that we're using. It's what it stands for. If a servant mentality in that kind of a deal, kids will fight about the curfew. Can I take the car out? How much is my allowance? What can I do? Where can I go? Issues, issues, issues. A son says, dad said 12 midnight. We better be in here by 12 midnight. I, I'm not issue oriented. This church is not issue oriented. It doesn't have a political agenda. We're not building this church on some issue. One saved, always saved. Prosperity gospel, kingdom. I can just, they just never stop. End times, the date of the rapture. Is it going to be Y2K? Is it going to be the alignment of the planets? Oh, is it going to be the issues, issues? None of those issues save you. None of those issues make you righteous. So why would you build on a divisive issue? I hold the issue you want, but don't be divisive about it. You stand firm where Scripture is clear. Where Scripture is clear, I'm unwavering. But it's not clear on a lot of things, or it is not something that will affect your right standing with God or your relationship with God. So why would you want to be ugly about something like that. We have people that come to a church, but they don't come to worship God. They come with an agenda. It's a political, can I hand this out? Can I hand this out? And then if I let you hand it out, I got to let everybody else hand it out. See, no, no, I'm not building it on that. Well, I'm not coming here. Well, if you don't preach what I believe about this, as much as I think you ought to preach about it, then we're out of here. Well, the sooner the better, sweetheart. Don't let that door hit you in the bottom on the way out. We're not building this church. We're building it on Jesus. We're not building it on the issue. But there are people, the, the, see, the servants always come in and do that. So I hope you'll take that little quiz and apply it to your heart and say, am I thinking like a servant? Or am I thinking like a son? Am I acting like I got ownership in this baby? Like it's part of my future? And if I'm only here for three years because of my military or whatever, did I leave that like a house I walked into that I owned? Did I give it my best? Did I treat it like it was my own? For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.